Hey everyone, welcome to episode number five of Musicians for Mental Health. On this podcast, we speak with musicians about mental health openly and honestly without the veil of lyrics. We are not mental health professionals. We are not licensed therapists or counselors. We are people that have our own personal experiences with mental health and want to shed light on these things. On this episode, I talk with an artist named Darrow. Um, If you haven't heard of him before, over on the You Make the Scene podcast, we had done a previous episode with him, kind of introducing him to people and, you know, to his music. Uh, But Darrow and I have become, I would dare say, friends. And, um, you know, we're relatively close. And I think the thing that I appreciate about him doing this podcast is the openness and the willingness to tell his story. Um, We obviously will get into that a little more in depth in the episode, but basically what we talk about is the impact of hospitalization on mental health. Um, Both of us had extended hospital stays. His was a little more, um, well, it was different than mine. So mine was very much a critical care situation. Um, For those of you that don't know, and you'll hear in the episode again some more detail, but back at the end of January 2021, uh, I was diagnosed with COVID-19. Subsequently, I ended up having to go to the emergency room and uh, ended up being lifelined and spent 46 days in the hospital. Um, Darrow's experience was a little bit different. He, uh, found out that he had a brain tumor. This was after some other things that were going on physically. He had to have some jaw surgery. Um, he was having trouble with his vision. Come to find out both of these things were direct, uh, responses from this brain tumor. Um, and he talks a lot more detail about that. So we'll definitely leave that to the episode. But um, within this episode, we talk a little bit about, you know, how dehumanizing it is to be in the hospital for extended amounts of time. Um, I had some amazing doctors and nurses, but you still feel very alone and you still feel like you're not quite human because you're having a bunch of tests ran on you. You're not able to do the things that you normally would do. There's just a lot that goes into um, your mental state. So we talk a lot about that. Uh, The feeling of isolation that you have um, from the outside world and, you know, the importance of friends and family and and whoever just touching base, Um, you know, checking in, especially outside of visiting hours or if they know that they can't come see you for a while because of whatever, you know, everybody has, has lives. So I totally understand, you know, you've got a job to go to and you may not be able to be there every day, which is totally fine. Um, but a simple text or FaceTime or anything like that does go a long way. Um, yeah, so there's a lot more that we talk about. I really want people to pay attention in this episode though, because, whether it affects you directly or not, uh, there's information in here that's going to be important. So if you know anyone that has had an extended 
stay at a hospital or if you yourself have, I think there's information in this episode that is going to put a lot of things in perspective when it comes to that. So I really hope you guys enjoy this episode. I thank Darrow so much for taking the time. Uh, I know it's a long episode, but I promise if you listen through the whole episode uh, that there's A, a lot of good information, but B, there is a secret surprise in the episode. So be sure to listen to the whole thing and find that secret surprise. So um, yeah, let's dive into the conversation that I had with Darrow about the impact of hospitalization on mental health. For people that didn't listen to the previous episode between you and I, um, let's kick off with the boring-ass introduction, um, (laughs) who you are, and uh, obviously we're doing musicians for mental health, so um, give a little background on the music project, and I'll definitely obviously be linking your music and the previous episode as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, Of course. So my name is Darrow. Uh, I am in, I, I guess you would call it, in the realm of emo, alternative pop punk music artist, um, I'm Asian American, and I guess like the core story about me, the reason why I'm here is because in 2017, uh, I was diagnosed with a brain tumor that set me back pretty heavily um, during my musical journey, and I'm just here to talk about how that can really affect, you know, your overall career, the overall journey, and really like in, in ways that you could never expect it to. And it affects everyone differently too. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, something interesting from our previous conversation is, you know, the, and we'll talk about it as you tell your, your story for sure. Um, but, you know, you, you ended up having the jaw issue, which was actually the tumor issue to begin with that caused the jaw, but you didn't, you know, you were kind of chasing symptoms to start with yeah. and found out later that, oh, there's this growth in my brain now that has been causing all of these other issues. Mm-hmm. That's exa- Yeah, it was, it was, uh, I, I was experiencing symptoms related to this tumor since I was like 18, 18 years old. Um, and I didn't get diagnosed until I was 24. So for like, six six ish years i was like dealing with all of these different what i thought to be unrelated symptoms um really odd like really weird um weak joints Uh, i had bone growth in my jaw which was a result of my tumor producing too much growth hormone um and that actually caused me to grow taller than i should have which is kind of cool but in retrospect it kind of really really messed up my knees so it doesn't feel that great. I can't do as many cool things as I used to when I was younger. Um, and just all kinds of anxiety and depression related because of the fact that the brain tumor was in my pituitary gland, which is the gland that's responsible for all of your hormone production. And when your hormones are not, yeah. when there's those things, when your hormones aren't balanced, you are just not a normal person. Um, right. And it's, there's probably a lot of ailments that people are experiencing that is hormone hormonal related and they just don't know yeah yeah absolutely and you know like the hollywood cliche of it or the like hollywood joke of it is always like a woman getting ready to pms or whatever like oh they're just being hormonal and yeah it's 
it's funny, it's comedic, whatever, but like in real life, even taking out PMS and stuff. Yeah. Like when your pituitary gland is messed up, like it fucks everything up. Absolutely. I was like, I was having panic attacks at like three in the morning for no reason. I remember, I remember like at the height of it, when, when the, the tumor was affecting me the worst, I was in Spain, I was in grad school. Um, and I was studying in Spain and I just remember like, I was working a part-time job as well. Um, and I finished my shift and I got home at 3am. Like I was working in a studio and I would work really late, late hours because the studios open really late. So I would get home at like two, two thirty in the morning. And I just remember like not being able to sleep, uh, because again, my cortisol levels were through the roof because my hormones were all crazy. Um, and I just remember laying in bed, just like hyperventilating slash sobbing for like Mm -hmm. 30 straight minutes. And like, I didn't know why, like there wasn't like, there wasn't a specific trigger. I just remember feeling so incredibly anxious and trapped. Um, and overall, just like, I didn't like, I just wasn't, I don't know. I didn't really know how to find calmness or peace, um, during that time. And I can just all exploded one of those nights. And I remember calling my sister and I, I couldn't get a single word out. I like, I was just bawling the entire time. And like, and, and the thing is like me and my family, we're not, we're not really like that. We're not like super mushy gushy. (laughs) Like we're not like, we, we just weren't raised that way. Um, and so like for her to see me like at such, and she's my little sister too. She's my younger sister. And for her to see me, her older brother, just like completely like against the ropes, just like, like barely hanging on. Like she was like so concerned. And the worst part was no one could do anything for me. Cause I was on the other side of the planet. Right. <laughs> I was completely alone. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, so We'll, we'll dive in, we'll do your whole story in just a second, but you know, kind of one of the connections that you and I have through those stories is my little sister, when I had my COVID bout, which we'll talk about in a minute as well, um, I ended up being lifelined. And obviously like that fucked everybody up that's close to me because they're there, but they still can't do anything. Yeah. Um, and then I was in a, basically a medically induced coma for a long time and all that, but, um, I'll never forget. My sister told me one day, um, shortly after I, I came out of the coma, kind of the same as you, like we just weren't raised to be like super lovey dovey or, you know, like hugs and, and mushy and all that. So like, I guess, and I don't fully remember it because I was still on a shitload of drugs, but I guess she was getting ready to leave one day after visiting me and I mouthed, I love you. And she started crying because it's the first time in like years, apparently that I've said it. And I was like, I hate to be that guy, but like, I don't even remember saying it. So, (laughs) you know, like, like, does it count? It's it's unspoken. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing, like she, and I'm sure same for your family and you, like they know that I care, that I love them, all that. We just, we're not vocal about it. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think yeah. is starting to change. It's starting to change, which I think is good. Um, yeah. But yeah, like when I was raised, it, it wasn't like very, it wasn't a very vocal thing. And I don't know yeah. if it's just like my generation or if it's like the fact that I'm like an Asian Asian American, you know, because obviously like my parents were immigrants. So there's there's a difference in that. Um, so I don't know. But yeah, no, that's, that's, tr- that's just like terrifying to think about. 
Like I can't imagine, I don't, obviously I don't have children, so I don't really know what it would be like to just like be on the other side of the glass and not be able to do anything. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I'm in the same boat as you. Like, obviously we were on the negative side of that glass, but like, I can't, I can't imagine switching places. And like my sister had to make a lot of medical decisions for me because I'm comatose essentially and whatnot. And like, I want to say that I could do that, but I don't know, you know, that's scary. Yeah. It's nuts. It's nuts. Uh, so let's dive in for people that, okay. that didn't listen to the previous episode with us. Um, I, I want you in as much detail or as little detail as you want to give. I know you're pretty open about it. So um, let's talk about your story and kind of the development of the, the tumor and the things you went through leading up to your hospitalization. Yeah. Okay. So I was hospitalized a few times and I'll, I'll include that in these, um, in these little tidbits. Um, so I want to say symptoms for me first appeared when I was around 18 years old. So I was like a senior in high school. I'm just about to go to my first year of college. And that's when I first started noticing like just chronic headaches. Um, and I felt really sore at the bottom of my neck. Um, and I always thought it was just stress related and it probably was part of it. Um, the issue, which I'm sure a lot of like teenagers can experience is when you go to a doctor and you explain your symptoms, the first thing they'll do is be like, oh, you're just probably experiencing like stress or like, like, you know, they, they really gaslight you because you're a kid and they, they're just like, this kid can't be experiencing any serious problems that adults experience. And so headaches for me, headaches are so common. So the doctor, all they could do was give me ibuprofen. So he just prescribed me ibuprofen. And I was like, this is great. I could have just went to CVS for that. Um, so thanks for right. the help. Um, and that continued for years. It was literally for, like, I went to go see a chiropractor. I, you know, I went to go see get massages and they never went away. And they just got worse actually. Um, and I didn't understand. I didn't know what was wrong with me. I just thought like, is this just how it is to exist? Like, you know what I mean? Cause, cause you only have right. perspective. So I don't really, I didn't have anything else to compare it to except for how I felt years ago when I didn't have chronic headaches. Um, And then I started noticing a few things. So like I, you know, fast forward a couple of years, um, I started noticing really weird joint pain, um, specifically in my knees. Um, I used to be an avid tennis player. um, So I played a lot of tennis back in the day. And then when I think it was like one summer in 2015, I was playing tennis and um, I tore my MCL, which was, it was weird because like it's, it was never like, I wasn't doing anything crazy. Like it wasn't a crazy move. Like I I was playing like my technique, my technique is pretty, is good. It's like, it's not like I'm a decent tennis player. So I wasn't doing anything wrong on the court. I just, I guess, overworked my knees. Cause when I went to go get, go get it checked out, like it didn't really hurt that much, but then like the days, as the days went by, it was like, wow, like I really can't like go upstairs. Um, and it just got to the point where, and I lived on the fourth floor of a walk-up building in Boston. There's a lot of stairs and I was a musician. So I was like hauling guitars and amps up and down four flights of stairs all the time. Um, and so it got to the point where I was like, okay, I need to go see a doctor. Uh, so I went to go see a doctor and they, you know, they gave me an MRI. It's my first MRI ever. 
and they're like, yeah, your MCL is torn and it's been pretty beat up for a very long time. And I was like, what? So, so uh, that was my first, <laughs> like first experience with surgery that I can like honestly remember. Um, I, I believe I had surgery when I was way younger, but I don't remember any of it. Um, so they, you know, they went in and all they could really do was get rid of the torn tissue because like, there isn't really much you can do to repair a torn NCL. Apparently, um, it can heal on its own for the most part. But when I was speaking to the doctor, uh, he basically said like, you'll get like 60, you'll get like between 60 and 90% functionality, which is a really, really wide range. Yeah. Um, and so I was like really concerned and I didn't really know like how to take that. But I remember the surgery was a week before my senior recital. And this was like in February. This was, this was a week before the senior, my senior recital and my birthday. My senior recital and my birthday were, I think they were either on the same day or like the day after each other. But I just remember yeah. it was snowy in Boston and I was walking around Boston in crutches and I still had my guitar on my backpack, on my back. I still had my guitar on my back, walking around in crutches in snow. And I, I did my entire senior recital sitting on a chair. Um, I looked so fucking lame. It was like the most embarrassing performance probably of my entire life. Um, and I was so pissed because I had been working for that senior recital for basically four years. Like when you, when you go to right. Berkeley, like, and you decide to be a performance major, you start working on your senior recital and your repertoire since day one. Like, so yeah. I had been working up to that point for four years and I had to do a sitting in a chair because I had a freaking surgery the week before. I realized now that it wasn't that big of a deal because like it's, you're in college and everything feels like it's more important than it is. Um, yeah. But like at the, at the time I was like, this is like my moment and I like, squandered it because I was injured and that really fucked with my mentality. Cause like, I just felt like such a failure. I didn't feel, I didn't feel cool. Like I wasn't like satisfied with myself. Um, and that leads to self doubt. It led, it led to so much self doubt over something that I didn't have any control yeah. over, you know? Right. Like I was like, I'm not a cool musician. I'm not a cool looking artist. Like I was sitting down, I had crutches, like I looked pitiful. And for somehow that equated to my ability as a musician when it obviously doesn't like objectively yeah. um, right. and those are things that I had no control over. Um, but it took me months to be able to walk upstairs again. And I remember like having to lug equipment up and down those stairs. It, I, I went from two crutches to one crutch. And when it got to one crutch, it was like, all right, I'm, I'm carrying more stuff. And I remember yeah. like, like going up the stairs with one crutch in one arm and a guitar amp on another arm and my guitar on my back. And it was just like, cause I hate, I hate taking multiple trips. Right. So yeah, that was, that was a struggle. So I finished the school year in Boston. I graduate, I think 2016. And then part of my self-esteem was like, you're not good enough yet, Darrow. You need to go get a master's degree. So I was like, all right, let me audition for, for, for grad school. And I decided I went to go, I went to Spain to go get my master's in performance at Berkeley because they have a campus in Valencia. And I went there. This was maybe seven months after my, my knee surgery. Um, I had the summer off. I went straight to Spain and it was crazy. It was like a brand new world, fresh start. 
my morale was really high, you know, because like I had just like I thought that I ended the school year on such a lame note. I was like, all right, I had this brand new fresh start. I'm all about fresh starts, I guess. So I went there and it was great for the first like month. It was really exciting. I was like, okay, like this is like real. I felt really passionate again. I felt that fire that you first get. Um, And it was really cool. And then like, I don't remember what exactly triggered it, but I started noticing this was the year I started noticing how much my jaw had like changed Um, because it got to a point sometime in like August of 2016 or like September where I was the moment I was training to slice a pizza and my jaw had grown my, I had grown such a large underbite that when I was trying to literally like bite into the slice of pizza, my teeth didn't meet each other. Like it, it was like, I don't know if you can see this. Right. It was like this. Yeah. The, it, it offset. Yeah, yeah. Offset. So there was a gap between my front teeth and my bottom teeth, my top front teeth and my bottom front teeth. And the pizza just like, there was no bite. Like all, all that ended up happening was the pizza went inside my mouth and like, they, I was like physically unable to like get my teeth to connect to each other to like actually rip off a pizza pizza. And so I resorted to using a fork and knife. And, you know, right. of course, like people make fun of you when you use a fork and knife with pizza. Um, of course, yeah. it, was, like, it was all fun. It was all like, oh, why are you using a fork and knife? You're lame. Like it was like a joke, but like no one knew that I was doing it because I physically couldn't eat pizza. Right. And so that was just like more like ego, like more like I was just so embarrassed. And also it hurt. Like my jaw was in so much pain, like all the time. I thought it was because I was so stressed all the time, which I was. Um, and then I thought that I was like clenching my jaw or like grinding my teeth in my sleep. But yeah. you can't really grind your teeth when they don't meet. So right. <laughs> so I don't actually, <laughs> like I thought about that. I was like, I can't really grind my teeth if they don't touch each other. Um, so then I eventually went, and then I went to go see a, um, an orthodontist because I was like, can braces fix this? And they were like, no, you need to get jaw surgery. Um, and I had been looking into jaw surgery for a while. It's extraordinarily expensive, especially here in the United States. In Spain, it's still expensive, but significantly cheaper. Um, and so, and I'll, I'll never forget this. My mom sold her car to pay for my jaw surgery. She sold, she sold her car. It was like, she sold her car and wired me the money and paid in full my entire jaw surgery. And I owe her so much. I owe her a house if I could. Um, But she wired me the money for the surgery. And because of that, um, I, she was unable to come visit me for the surgery. Cause it was like two, it was like, you know, a round trip was like two grand or whatever. And I was like, one, yeah. too much yeah. money to, to like come see me for like the surgery was supposed to be over like two days. I spent a couple of days in the hospital. I go back for a follow-up the week later. So like ultimately she'd be there for like five days. And I was like, that's just right. too much money for five days. Like I can handle it. Like I have a strong enough willpower to like, go through the surgery by myself. I didn't tell anyone at school because I was very embarrassed about it, right. um, which was a mistake. And also telling my mom not to come was sort of a mistake. The, doing it alone was a mistake. That was the mistake. Right. Um, because this yeah. 
this surgery. So I got the surgery in December of 2016. I skipped finals. I didn't take finals that semester. Um, I, I emailed my, my professors um, and they were like really, really, you know, supportive about it. I skipped finals that semester to get surgery for my jaw. And I, 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 there's, there's, it's jaw surgery is one of the most traumatic experiences I think that a person can go through. Um, and it's really hard for me to articulate like how traumatic it is. Um, but I remember, I remember um, reading about it, like, pr like right. preparing myself for the jaw surgery. I was looking at blog posts. There's a lot of tumblers, There's a lot of people like documenting their experience and all of them, yeah. all of them described it as like one of the worst things that they've ever been through. And I was like, it's fine. I'm going to have a good smile after this. It's worth it. Right. Um, and I want to say it was if I had been better prepared. I wasn't. But so you, so, the, <laughs> okay, I'm just going to go through it because I show up at the hospital. Yeah. It was like a Friday night. And um, I show up on a Friday night. I had my little suitcase packed. And I knew that after the jaw surgery, you're going to be put on a liquid diet. You're not phys you're physically unable to eat anything. Um, from reading all right. the posts, all the stories, everyone was unable to eat anything solid for like at least six months. Um, so I was like, and everybody had been talking about, look, how do you get nutrition and stuff like that? Um, they're like, Ensure, which is like this nutritional drink. I'm sure, you know, Ensure. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they had it in other countries. They had it in Spain. Um, my issue was that, I was traveling uh, in, I had this tiny little carry-on suitcase and I couldn't fit a week's worth of Ensure with me. Was, that's like a case, you know, right. if I was using it yeah. to supplement all of my meals. So I had to get the powdered version of it so I could mix it in with like the water from the tap. Uh, so that was my plan. And then I was also like, but like, what if I get tired of like chocolate Ensure or vanilla Ensure? So then I was like, okay, so I got these like right. uh, chicken broth cubes right? That you can put in like hot water and you just get like yep. on chicken broth. So I had those. So I, I was like, yep. okay, I'm ready. Like I'm going to go there. I'm going to use, and then I bought an electric tea kettle so that I could like a really portable one. So I could like heat yep. up this, the chicken broth soup. So I was like really prepared and stuff. I show up and they check me into the hotel or sorry, they check me into the hospital um, because I wasn't allowed to stay in the hospital after the surgery, I had to like stay in a, ho a hotel down the street until okay. my follow-up appointment, which is why I was going to stay yeah. in a hotel afterward. So I stayed in the hospital that night. Um, I did not sleep. I remember, I remember being extraordinarily uncomfortable and I was just in a pitch black room. So it was not a great way to start <laughs> like my right. surgery journey. I, I, I literally felt like yeah. I was just like in a cave um, and I was on a flat bed. I didn't realize that like you could recline it. So it was just flat. Nope. I don't know why there weren't yeah. any pillows. I just remember not sleeping that night. And then I wake up the next morning. Uh, the lady tells me to go into the bathroom and wash myself with like all this like antibiotic stuff. So I did. I sanitized myself. And then I got into my hospital gown. Um, and then she put an IV in my arm. And then she walked me to the operating area or whatever. And I remember laying down in the hospital bed the doctor just like meeting the doctor for the first time. That was the first time I ever met the surgeon. And, and again, this is in Spain. So most of the things that they're saying to me are in Spanish or like decent English. They actually have really good English in Spain. Um, 
and <laughs> they, you know, they put the anesthetic in and I just fall asleep. And then immediately woke up and I woke up in a room and I just remember my jaw feeling very different. Like the first yeah. thing I remember is like, I remember my teeth were touching. Like if like I could tell by the way that my mouth was structured that my bite was finally correct. Like my two front teeth were in front of my bottom teeth, which yeah. is the first time that it's ever been in like seven years. When I was 18, I had a perfect bite. I had a, no crooked teeth or anything. And then as I got older, it got, everything got fucked up. So I remember <laughs> like experiencing for the first time in like seven years, my teeth physically touching each other. Um, and I could tell that it was correct, but it didn't feel correct because my muscles were fighting against this new position. Um, yeah. Because they had grown used to the way that they were, they, they were used to the underbite. So they were actually fighting against my teeth to like push it back to the way it was. And so it felt like I was straining against myself. Um, my, my, my muscles felt really sore, like they were like pushing right. against themselves, like they were being strained. Um, I also felt an, an extraordinary, extraordinary amount of metal in my mouth because what they did was they, they went in and they basically broke my bottom jaw into three pieces and then my top jaw into three pieces. And then they removed some bone from like the edges of both of my top and bottom jaw. And then they pushed, they, what did they, do? they pushed my bottom jaw back and they pulled my top jaw forward and rotated it slightly. Um, and then they put braces on and then wired everything shut. And they also like put screws in my gums so that they could anchor, uh, yeah. the braces. So I had, I literally had screws just like sticking out of my gums. It was drilled into the bone of my teeth or wherever my jaw was. And I remember like having yeah. to put rubber bands, there were hooks on my braces and the, uh, screws inside my mouth. I had to connect rubber bands from my braces to the screws in the bottom of my jaws to like align Oof. my teeth correctly and keep the positioning there. And so it was just like right. constant, constant. And anyone who has like braces understand, remembers the pressure. Um, anyone who's had jaw surgery knows like those rubber bands are there to like keep your muscles from, it's basically the counter tension against your muscles because your muscles are trying to push back. Yeah. So the rubber bands are acting as tension to fight back against your muscles to keep your teeth in the same position. Um, because your muscles will push your jaw back into place if you don't leave. So, and it was, everything was wired shut. I couldn't open my mouth right. at all. Um, and that's what it felt like. And then the, the kicker, and this is where the traumatic experience comes in is I, I couldn't breathe because my nose was completely stuffed with dried blood. Yeah. And, um, apparently like when they come in there and they like do all this crazy stuff to your, your jaw, like this whole area your nose just starts oozing blood and then it dries up and it clots and then you can't breathe. And my face was incredibly swollen, obviously like from the operation yeah. um, to the point where I looked like the nutty professor. I probably said that <laughs> in the last one. Um, I think you did. <laughs> yeah. I straight up looked like CGI. It, lo it straight yeah. up looked like someone used a filter on my face and it was like, I, sh I swear uh, it's, it's insane how much my face was swollen. I literally, my face was the size of a basketball and that's not an exaggeration. It was astounding that yeah. my face was able to stretch that much. Um, but because of that, my, my lips were swollen shut, my nose was clogged and I couldn't breathe. I was 
I was physically suffocating. Um, and I started panicking because I couldn't breathe. And so when I started panicking, I started crying and I started sobbing and then blood was oozing down my nose and snot was oozing down my nose. And then I started choking on it. And I was, it, I, then I couldn't even breathe. Then it was worse. Like I couldn't breathe more. Right. Um, and I was panicking so much that the nurse came in and she stuck an oxygen tube in my mouth and like behind my molars so that like I would have a, a stream of air. Yeah. And it was, I was probably only like suffering for like 20 minutes. Um, but it felt like, like hours and just, just getting that tube of air. Like that was the most relieving thing I can think. It was one of the most relieving things of my entire life. It's so crazy. It's, it's so crazy. Like the psychology yeah. of your mind that like, you're just, you just can't get air and like all you want. It was like, it was like the most gratifying thing. And so I suffer yeah. that whole night. Um, I couldn't fall asleep because every time I'd fall asleep, I'd like choke on myself. Uh, so then I would like wake back up and then they finally checked me out of the hospital and I had to stay in a hospital, uh, a hotel down the street so that I could stay in the area, um, so that I could see the doctor seven days after the surgery for a follow-up because the, the surgery was in Barcelona and I was living in Belize, right. which is like four hours away. So yeah. I wasn't going to train back and then train back. So I stayed in the hospital, the hotel, and this was also extremely, extremely traumatic because, uh, I couldn't eat anything. I couldn't drink anything. Um, I had to wake myself up, up every two hours to like mix my own medicine and like slowly, I had to like crush the pills and twirl it into, yeah. I, couldn't, I couldn't swallow pills. I couldn't put it in my mouth. So I had to like crush the pills and mix it into water uh, to drink it slowly. And there was like six pills. So like I had to, a lot. Um, and then the issue was that yeah. the glasses were really, really tiny. They were like really like really small, <laughs> like, um, like like what are those like out like shot glass they weren't like shot a cocktail glass, glass. like yeah. a cocktail glass or like a cocktail like glass. glass yeah yeah something you just put like yeah. rum in or whatever um and i was like mixing like three ounces of water with insure and i was just like trying to like mix this and drink like half a meal <laughs> and mix it again. i was doing this like i spent all my time doing this for that week uh, but it was it really messed with me with my psyche because like i was alone in a hotel room for seven days straight with like un unable to communicate because I couldn't physically speak, un unable to go outside because one, I was in like a decent amount of pain and I was just so embarrassed to like show my face. Right. And unable to eat, unable to drink. Um, it was just like, it was basically torture. I was torturing myself for a week. And so that sucked a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I don't recommend that experience <laughs> to people. Um, yeah. So that was my first time. My my first that was way more traumatic than brain surgery. Five far, far, far more traumatic than the brain surgery. And then it, it's it didn't like the side effects from that surgery, like the swelling and stuff in my face didn't go away for years. Like I think if you look at pictures of me in like 2019, which is three years after the surgery, my my face was still kind of swollen. Um yeah. Like my face doesn't has only looked like this for the past year, I think. Um, so I was still seeing changes for a very long time. And this was so that that jaw surgery happened in December 2016, seven months after my knee surgery. And then the big one was July of 2017. So I graduated July of 2017. Like I got back to school. I like I chugged through it. Um, you know. 
I finally started recording music. And I, this is the first time I ever recorded my own music. And I was unable to sing because uh, the jaw surgery had fucked so much of right. like of my mouth. And like, I just like, I, everything felt different. So singing was very, very hard. And I didn't have control. Like I, my face was still very numb. So I didn't have like proper control or of movement. And I still don't. Like it's, yeah. there's still a lot on my face that's really pretty numb from that surgery. Um, uh, and so... I recorded that and I was just like, I was just excited to finally like do music that I was proud of, you know? Um, and I was like, okay, great. Like I'm going to finish school. I'm going to move back to the United States and I'm going to go tour. I'm going to like put together a band, start playing music. And I was like, ready. Like I was like, I've spent a decade yeah. studying music. I'm ready to go play, be an artist. Now I get home, I graduate, I come back to the United States. Two days after I graduate, um, I go to the eye doctor because I was experiencing vision problems. There was like peripheral vision was my peripheral vision was blurry. Um, and it had been like that for, for, for weeks. Um, and so I decided to wait until I was back home. So I went to the eye doctor and I was like, Hey, there's something wrong. I don't know if it's like an eye infection or what. And he does some scans and he's like, there isn't an eye infection. There is something physically behind your eyes. That's pushing your optic nerves. It's causing your blurriness. And he's like, I don't know what it is but you need to go to the ER right now. So I did. Um, right. He made it sound so urgent. He was like, you need to go right <laughs> now. I'm going to write you a note. I'm going to write you a note so that they'll see you right away. And I was like, okay, great. Like this, how could this go wrong? Um, I show up to the ER and I wait like eight and a half, like eight hours for someone to actually see me. I show up at like, my eye doctor was uh, 11. I show up at the ER at like 1130 and I didn't get, I didn't get my MRI until like 9.30. Um, Jeez. And it was it was just insane. I waited that long. Um, didn't eat anything. And then when they find, so after nine hours of waiting or so, they 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 finally check me in and they bring me to the, the, um, the room, the medical room. And they start asking me all these really weird questions like, like, have you ever... Have you ever had experienced joint problems? Have you ever like experienced like like chronic uh, pain in the neck? Like just like all these things that were like unrelated to my eyeballs. And I was like, yes, right. yes, yes. But like, what does this have to do with with my eyes? And they're like, we're going to run some tests. So they, they drew blood. Um, I had really high levels of specific hormones that they checked for. And then when they put me in the MRI, they they had to inject me with contrast so they could like see the images better. And then I broke out in hives because I was allergic to hives or allergic to the contrast, <laughs> which I didn't know about. Um, right. I never like that had never happened. I've never needed that before. So that sucked. And they pulled me out yeah. right away. They were able to get the images and they found a four centimeter tumor, at, like the base of my brain, but they didn't know what it was at the time. They just knew that it was something that was a mass that didn't belong right. there. And they're like, this is the thing that's pushing on your optic nerves. So there was like a physical tumor. Um, and they're like, we don't know what it is. It could be, it could be a pituitary tumor. It could just be fluid or it could be cancer. And then when they said the C word, I like, I was like, I lost, yeah. drained my, my whole face is drained of blood. Um, I mean, so eventually we worked through it. We found out that it wasn't cancer and they decided to get surgery to like remove it because it was physically, it was it was benign, but it was still functioning, meaning that it, it still was wreaking havoc on my body. And it was yeah. on my pituitary gland, which wrecked all of my hormones. It was the reason why my jaw grew out. It was the reason why my joints were all messed up. 
because uh, I was continually continuing to grow. It was the reason why I was chronically stressed because my cortisol levels were through the roof. Um, I had zero testosterone in my body. Um, so I was like, had zero motivation. I was always depressed. I had like incredible amounts of weight gain. So all of these like lists of problems that I had been experiencing that I previously thought were unrelated turned out to be all because of one thing, um, a golf ball size tumor. Yeah. And they were like, we're going to go into surgery to get this out. So they did the surgery in September of 2017. And it was a large success. There's still a teeny, teeny, teeny microscopic amount of tumor left. Um, but it's too small for them to go back in. It's, it's like, it's just not, it's too dangerous to go back in for that right. small amount. Um, and, you know, there's, there's still damage. Like there's, there's, I'm like on medication and I will always be on medication. And I have to take a couple of injections every month. One I have to do myself. The other I have to go to a specialist for. And that's like, that's it for the rest of my life. I just, I just have to deal with that. Um, and after the surgery, I just remember being so incredibly weak. Um, it didn't hurt. I wasn't in pain. I don't remember suffering. I just remember being incredibly tired and dehydrated um, because the surgery had affected my ability to regulate water and sodium. So I was unable to retain water for like, for like a year. I was unable to retain water in my body. So I yeah. like, I, it gradually got better, but the first like couple of months, I, I would drink water and pee it out in five minutes. Like I was, my lips were always chapped. My, my, my throat was always dry, no matter yeah. how much water or Gatorade or whatever I drank. It's just, my body was unable to retain the water and it would just, everything would pee out. Um, and that was, that was hell. That was like, that was really uncomfortable because I was so tired that I couldn't actually get up to walk to the bathroom. Like it took yeah. me two weeks before I was able to like walk to my own bathroom. So I had to pee in a tub for the first two weeks, like in my own house, I yeah. in a tub, or like a, like a gallon um, for the first two weeks until I was like, until I had enough strength to like walk into the bathroom. And then it was like two months before I was like the two month mark where I was like able to walk around in stores again. And like, yeah. when I say stores, I mean like, like one store, I was able to walk to the car, walk down a few aisles. And then I was, I was done. I was like, had right. no energy. And so, right. Yeah. Like that's, it was a pretty, and, and then I moved to New York city to like, start finally start doing music because like this, this brain tumor had set me back for like, like a year and a half. Um, because I, like, again, I was planning on coming back and starting a band and like touring. Um, and then I just, I physically couldn't cause I was in the hospital and it like really like screwed with my mentality. Um, yeah, I don't know where you want me to stop because I could keep going. Like I'm still, <laughs> no. I was, I was in the hospital like like months ago. No, no, you're good. Um, I I think that gives people a good idea of everything. So like the the point I wanted to get at with your story is you know it it started like I said earlier like you were chasing symptoms because of this thing yeah. that nobody knew was there, and then you know we talked last time um in the other podcast about kind of that feeling when you're laying in the hospital and you're just so isolated like yeah yeah there's visitation hours and stuff and that's cool and you know it's a great feeling when people come and see you but the other like 16 hours a day and and that's if somebody's there the whole eight hours of visitation mm -hmm. but you know what i mean like 
realistically 16 to 20 hours a day you're by yourself you're in your own head you're watching watching tv but god knows that's not good enough you know like so we'll give the quick version of my story so um you know yours was a little more gradual like we were saying you know took a few steps before it was like okay you're going to be in the hospital for a little while yeah uh mine was covid and um you know, to this day, I'm not scared of the virus, the Delta variant, all that stuff. Like, yeah. it is what it is. And I, I think I said that the last time we talked, and it's such <laughs> a weird outlook to have. <laughs> it's it's a weird outlook to have, and I know that because, like, literally, I almost died. Right. But I, at some point in my life, it was just, it clicked that, like, if I can't control it, then I just have to deal with it. Yeah. So for me... You know, I contracted COVID, um, not exactly sure like where, who, whatever, like none of that really matters. It's not like I'm going to go beat that person up or anything. I don't care. Um, But it started off with like real basic symptoms. And I was like, oh, this is like a sinus infection or something, because it was just like a a little bit of a cough, dry throat, a little bit of stuffy nose. And I'm like, cool. You know, it's this was in January of this year. And um I was just like, you know, it's, it's dry weather. It's no big deal. I live in Indiana. Winters suck, you know? Yeah. And uh, that stayed for like two days. That was on like a, I want to say it started on like a Thursday or a Friday. Mm-hmm. And then like Sunday, I started getting a fever with it. And I'm like, hmm, all right. Maybe I'm finally like trying to break whatever this is. Yeah. Monday, still had a fever, a little bit of that, you know, sore throat, dry throat, and sinus pressure, but like, I wasn't coughing, I didn't lose my taste and smell, nothing like that. Wasn't nauseous, no diarrhea, like, I had two or three symptoms of COVID. So I was like, in my mind, it's not fucking COVID. Like, there's no way that it's COVID. And uh, so then I called into work that day, and which I was working from home anyway, but I was just like, I just don't have the energy to, to mess with it today, you know, whatever. Then yeah. um, Tuesday I woke up and had 102.2 or 102.4 temp. And I was like, mm, shit, something's probably wrong. Like <laughs> maybe I'll go get checked out now. <laughs> yeah. So I went to, to med one, which is like an urgent care place. It's not the ER, but it's not a regular doctor's office either. Yeah. It's like a walk-in clinic thing. And uh, so I go in there and, check myself in, tell them what's going on. And the nurse that sees me, she's, I tell her how my symptoms are presenting and everything. She's like, well, I don't think it's COVID. It doesn't sound like it's presenting like COVID or at least none of it that I've seen. So let's do like the standard test, like flu test, strep, all that stuff. And I'm like, cool, bring it on. So we run all those tests and they all came back negative. Mm-hmm. And so she comes back in with that super long, swab stick up my nose all the way to my brain and and do that so she's like hey you were negative on everything else and i go you want to check for covid don't you and she goes i don't know what else to look for you know and i'm like okay i I might as well rule it out in my mind i was still like yeah but in my mind i was still like it's not covid we're just going to rule it out and it's going to be because i've had like walking pneumonia in the past yeah yeah, i'm like you know it's just something they can't test for and uh they don't do the quick test there. So they had to send it to the lab. Oh. And uh, yeah. So Tuesday, she's 
Tuesday night, you know, I went in at like, I don't know, probably six o'clock at night. And uh, she's like, well, uh, you know, we'll get that sent out. We should have results tomorrow for now. Uh, go to like Walgreens or CVS and get some like Mucinex and some ibuprofen and Tylenol. Just manage your symptoms. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. But why not? Right. So I go do that. Come back home. You know, I take my medicine, whatever. Woke up Wednesday and felt perfectly fucking fine. Oh, like really? no symptoms, no, no fever. Yeah. No fever. Throat felt fine. No sinus congestion, nothing. And I'm like, all right, I fucking, whatever that was like, I beat it, you know, I'm good. And then, um, Thursday I wake up and I'm like, I'm a little bit short of breath, but I was like, ah, it's early in the morning. Like whatever, like, Short of breath for me was at that moment, I didn't realize that I was chasing my breath. I just thought like I woke up suddenly. So I'm like, oh, I gasped for air or whatever, you know, and uh, went to the bathroom, took the morning piss, started walking back to the bedroom to get dressed. And I'm like, why, why can't I breathe? Like I was huffing and puffing like I had ran miles just Mm. chasing my breath. And I'm like, well, that's weird. So I sat on the edge of the bed for like literally a minute and I'm like, let me see if I can slow it down, whatever. Couldn't, couldn't do it. Yeah. Couldn't do that's- it. Like so I, I was thinking a panic attack, you know, cause I've had those in the past and I'm like, okay, like I'm just going to try to center myself. Yeah. I could not center myself. Um, so I text my buddy and I'm like, Hey man, uh, something's up. Like, I can't catch my breath. I don't know what's going on. Can you get one of those uh, little like finger oxygen sensor things, those pulse oximeters? Mm-hmm. And he's like, yeah. So he runs over to, to Walgreens on the way to my house, brings me that. We put the batteries in it, pop it on my finger, and it reads 47%. So to put this in perspective for people that don't know, because we'll get into the depths of this in a second, the average person is 90% or better all the time. Oh my gosh. Most people pass out at 75% or less. I was at 47% and I'm carrying on a conversation with my buddy and trying to figure out what's going on with me. Oh my God. And uh, we look at it, we look at it and we're like that, it can't be right. You know, there's no way. So we text his wife who works for an OBGYN. She asked one of the nurses and the nurse was like, absolutely not. It's got to be a bad sensor. Like he wouldn't be awake. Like he'd be unconscious. Like, is he blue in the face or anything? And my buddies <laughs> were talking right now. Like he looked fine. So they were like, all right, come get one of our sensors thinking it's a medical grade one. So it's got to be more accurate. We get that sensor, put it on my finger, and it reads like 30, 38, I think it was, 39, something like that. So So it had fallen, obviously, in that time. Yeah. And uh, my buddy looks at it and then looks at me and he goes, yeah, you're going to the ER. And I'm like, yeah, no, that's fine. I just want to be able to breathe, you know, like, and we're both in the mindset that all that's going to happen is we're going to get to ER. They're going to put me on oxygen for a minute. I'll be fine. So we get in his car and from my house to the ERs, maybe a 12 to 15 minute drive. Mm -hmm. I'm awake talking to him the whole time. 
we pull up to the ER doors and he's like, do you want help getting in? And I was like, no, I still feel fine. Like we just talked the whole way here. I didn't like pass out or anything. Mm-hmm. And I look at the sensor and it's at 5%. I had 5% oxygen in my blood and you're supposed to be at 90% or more. And uh, he goes, are you sure? And I was like, dude, I, I feel fine. I just can't breathe. And in my, like legitimately in my mind and, and body, like I was fine. I just couldn't catch my breath. Like yeah. I wasn't panicked. I didn't feel very weird other than chasing my breath. And uh, so I get out of his car. I walked into the ER under my own power, walked to the, you know, 75 feet up to the desk, whatever it was from his car. And uh, I set my hand down on the counter with the sensor still on it, pulled my ID out. And I'm like, yeah, I think I uh, think I need checked in. I can't catch my breath. And the nurse is sitting there. She's like, all right. And she pages for shortness of breath to the front desk because they take that seriously, obviously. And then she looked at the sensor and she's like, holy shit, hold on to this counter because you're going to pass out. Hurries up and goes and gets me a wheelchair. And I felt fine, but like, you know, it's a nurse. I'll do what she says, whatever. So I'm kind of hanging on to the desk, not like supporting myself, but just holding it. Mm-hmm. And uh, she sets me in this wheelchair and starts asking me the COVID questions. You know, are you COVID positive? What symptoms do you have? How long have you been positive? Blah, blah, blah. I answer all those questions. And she starts pushing me back to the back to the actual like ER area where the beds are and whatnot. And uh, my feet hit the ER doors to go back. And I remember nothing. Oh, after my that. gosh. So come to find out uh, when they got me hooked up to their oxygen, I was at, or their uh, sensor, I was at 4% oxygen in my blood. Oh my God. They put me on uh, nasal oxygen to start with. So just the tube in your nose. And they're like, you know, we'll start cranking that and see how that works. And I think they got me up to like nine or 10% with that, but I just, they could not get me to, to retain this oxygen. So they switched me to the full mask, you know, nose and mouth. And that did a little bit better. I think it got me up to like, I want to say they told me like mid to low thirties, something like that. Mm-hmm. And they're like, this still isn't working. But at that point they were like, we're going to have to lifeline this dude. Like, because they knew they couldn't handle what, whatever was getting me. Um, so lifeline actually declined to take me initially. Um, they, they flat out refused to take me because, okay. well, he, nope, he's oh. going to die in the air and we will not take him in the helicopter knowing that oh he's going to die. So, yeah, and that's, <laughs> obviously, that's what was happening during that time because they were like, they were declining yeah. patients because so many people were dying. Yeah. So, um, they, they kept working on me. They ended up doing the full, uh, intubate me and, you know, put the tube down my throat and all that to get me oxygen. And finally, they get me up to like 80 something percent Um, Mm. during that time, though, like this is about a two hour period that this is all happening. And uh, (laughs) they had a 45 minute debate with Lifeline on what stats they wanted me at in order to take me to our closest our next closest hospital that was going to be able to to take care of me, which was like 45 miles away, give or take. Um, so it's not even that far, but like, you know, it's still, we have to make sure that he's going to be okay. So, um, they end up getting me up 
to like 80, 86, 87%, something like that. And finally, Lifeline agrees to take me, but it took an ER doctor, an attending doctor, and the infectious disease doctor in oh my, my area to override Lifeline and say, you're taking this guy. Wait, had, so, they, had they tested you for COVID at that point? Like, did they know that you were positive? Uh, I had answered the question to tell them I was positive. I don't know if they ever did like a quick blood draw or saliva test uh, at the so hospital, they but they did. Yeah, they knew it was COVID symptoms. Um, they didn't know if that's what was causing it necessarily, but obviously it's a good indicator that that's what's going on. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they end up lifelining me down to Indianapolis and uh, where my sister ended up meeting me because my buddy had to call her on her way home from work and was like, hey, I dropped Josh off at the hospital and they won't tell me anything because I'm not family, but you have to go to Indianapolis because they're lifelining him. Oh my God. That, so she's, com yeah, completely out of the blue yeah. gets this, you know, information. Um, so anyway, I get down there and they end up putting me on ECMO, which for most patients is an end of life type of treatment. Like it's a last resort. We don't know what else to try. So they did that as kind of the first treatment for me after just straight oxygen. Um, so with that, basically what ECMO is, it is dialysis on steroids and it's for your lungs instead of your kidneys. So on my neck, people can't see it because I won't post the video, but uh, there's a, a scar over here and then one in the middle. So I had a trach tube and whatnot, obviously. But over here, basically, they put these two hoses that are about the size of a garden hose. Oh, my God. In your, your uh, whatever this is, the aortic uh, valve or the mm. aortic, um, what's the word I'm looking for there? Not vein, artery. <laughs> there we go. That's the word. Um, yeah. So they basically, with this machine, you have eight units of blood in your body at any given time. This machine takes out seven units of blood runs it through a machine to put oxygen in it and then pumps it back into your, your oh body. So, so it completely replaces your lungs your work body. to put oxygen in it, to and put it back happens. in my body. Yeah. Yeah. Modern medicine. Um, come to find out. Yeah. Come to find out later. Uh, ECMO is super scary. Um, <laughs> I didn't know cause I was unconscious, but um, they literally have two doctors assigned to every ECMO patient 24 seven, as long as you're on that machine, because if that machine fails, there's so much blood outside of your body, yeah. you will bleed to death in under two minutes. Yeah. Yeah. So if anything goes wrong, it's essentially a death warrant. So they have a nurse in the room with everybody 24 seven, basically, so that if any alarm goes off immediately, they can start working on it. Um, so I was on ECMO and a ventilator, ECMO for 18 days, ventilator for like 19, I think it was. 18 days? Uh, yeah. So the okay, average. Okay. okay. <laughs> let, let, me just, let me just put into perspective because like, I, I feel like people who are listening to this in like a week might not understand like the severity of how insane it is that for, for 18 days to have two doctors stationed by you during COVID, the height of COVID, mm -hmm. like that's. That's like, and those doctors are overworked and they were there for 24 hours for 18 days straight. Yeah, like they, insane. So I think they rotate out. I mean, they have shifts, but still like it's, yeah, it's just constant that there are at least two. Yeah. 
um, which is just, you know, mind blowing. But uh, so finally I wake up in the rehab hospital, or at least that's where I remember waking up. So during my unconscious period for that first 18, 19 days, um, they woke me up apparently a couple times off the paralytics and, and uh, sedatives for just basic function tests to make sure I could still wiggle my toes or squeeze their finger and stuff. I don't remember any of those tests, <laughs> not at all. And apparently I did really well on all of them, but um, yeah, yeah. So ended up getting to the rehab hospital um, and that was pretty scary for me because I wear contacts and at some point my sister thought about it and was like, while I was on ECMO and unconscious was like, Hey, uh, did he come in with glasses on? And they're like, uh, no, should he have? Mm. She goes, Hmm, can you check his eyes? He probably has his contacts in. So during this time that I was unconscious and my eyes were closed, I had contacts in, they had to, you know, put saline in my eyes to loosen them up and yeah, pulled my yeah. contacts out. Yeah. So when I, yeah. So when I woke up at the rehab hospital, <laughs> I don't have glasses or anything. So I thought, holy shit, whatever happened, like my vision is terrible. Like <laughs> negative, negative six and a quarter in one eye and like negative five and three quarter in the other. Yeah. So I can't see shit without my contacts yeah. or glasses. And so like I, you know, wake up in this hospital bed, which I kind of expected. Um, but then I'm like, I, I can't see, you know, like, and I can't talk because I have this trait tube in my throat and, you know, like all this shit's going through my mind. I'm like, how bad, how bad is this? Is this just a dream? Like what the fuck happened to me? Oh so then I find out, um, talking to, to the nurse that's taking care of me and she realizes, oh, he can't see. And she gets close enough to where I can make out her figure and whatnot. And she's asking me questions, which I could hear, obviously. I couldn't verbalize my answers, but I was mouthing my answers. And she's like, do you know where you are? And I mouthed hospital. And she's like, yeah. Do you know where? And I, I said Kokomo, which is where I'm from. And she's like, no, you're down in Indianapolis. And I'm like, okay. Like, didn't think anything about it because it's not that far of a drive. I was just like, okay, they had to move me because of COVID was my thought. Well, you know, I got there, they don't want a ton of COVID patients up there. So they were trying to spread it out. Turns out fucking no, uh, it's because I was almost dead. <laughs> um, but so she, she asked me if I knew what day it was and I told her a date and she's like, no, what month do you think it is? So I went in on January 28th and I said that I thought it was January because I literally could not remember any of that time. I thought it was the next day. I thought I passed out in the hospital. Mm -hmm. They gave me oxygen and kept me overnight. And it's the next day still in Kokomo. Oh She's God. like, mm, it's been three weeks. This is what's up. And I'm Ooh. like, what the fuck? You know, Dude. like that's a heavy, heavy blow. Um, and then, you know, similar to you, like I couldn't talk. I couldn't do a whole lot of stuff. I couldn't get out of bed on my own. Um, I know you could, but like, I, I lost all this mobility and stuff that I've had. Yeah. And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, I'm 35 years old at that time, 36 now, but like, what the fuck? You know, I've, yeah. I've walked for 34 years. I can't really move my legs that well. Yeah. I 
couldn't, you know, there was, and part of it was just the drugs I was on, but the other part was I was comatose essentially for 20 days <laughs> and my body just basically was shutting down or had shut down and, you know, now is trying to wake back up. Um, so, you know, I think the similarity between our two stories to tie this all back together is, you know, you mentioned being in that, that hospital room, just in the dark, yeah. not, you know, not able to really rest well, you can't really do anything. And that, that was me for the first week that I was awake, even in this rehab hospital, because A, I didn't have contacts or glasses, so I can't see shit. Mm -hmm. I can hear the TV, but I can't tell, like, you know, unless it's like price is right, you don't know yeah. what the fuck is going on. Yeah. So I'm, I'm stuck in this position of like, I can't move. I couldn't eat. I was on a feeding tube and stuff. So like, I wasn't allowed to drink anything. They were, you know, giving me ice chips from time to time, but that was it. And I'm just like, what the fuck is happening? And then obviously I bounced back really quickly once everything kind of was decided on how we were going to progress. Um, so day 20, 20 or 21 is when I woke up in the rehab hospital. We started making a plan about day 24, 25. And on day 46, I walked out of the hospital under my own power. From everything I've been told, I was unconscious for basically, yeah, I, I was unconscious for basically three weeks and then I was awake for about two and a half and I walked out of the and hospital. unable to move for that. Yeah. Most of the yeah. When I initially, uh, probably the first, probably the first week I couldn't move at all. Um, yeah, that's, yeah, crazy. it was. And that was COVID. Yeah. COVID did that. So too. I've been told. Yes. COVID. <laughs> so speaking of, so, Basically, with COVID, uh, what it was doing is it was blocking my blood's ability to absorb oxygen, which I don't know how much of that they knew was a, a thing that COVID could do mm -hmm. until me. <laughs> but right. like because uh, several of the doctors are like, you know, the way that your system or your uh, symptoms presented and everything like none of this makes any sense. Yeah. And, um, you know, it was just it was crazy because. Once we made that plan of how we were going to proceed, like just started shattering barriers, obviously, um, not the barriers, the like milestones, I guess, you know, like initially it's just, we want you to be able to stand up out of bed. We want you to start taking some steps with a walker or support, whatever. And just immediately I started just crushing all these goals. Uh, yeah. But, uh, with, with the COVID, um, it was blocking my ability to absorb oxygen. So I was below 50% oxygen for like two or two and a half hours. And from every scan that they've done so far, they cannot discern that there's any sort of brain damage, which they said is like not possible. Yeah. Um, the number one thing, it's like your body doesn't have oxygen, then like you just do your, you get brain damage. Yeah, yeah. Apparently not. So, um, but I also, Every doctor's like, it's impossible that you walked in under your own power at 5% oxygen. And I'm like, mm, there's video surveillance footage of it. Like, it yeah. happened. The nurse reported that it happened. Um, and then, you know, while I was on ECMO, my blood was essentially poisoned to my own body because it was so low in oxygen content. Um, I was hypertoxic for like four hours 
and they can't find any liver or kidney damage. And they're like, none of this, like you're literally a walking medical anomaly. And I think you're kind of in the same boat, you know, like medically speaking, not to the same extent, maybe. No, you, you cheated death. You cheated <laughs> death. That's different. I didn't cheat. I didn't cheat death. I just, I, I mean, honestly, my experience is, is I wouldn't say it's atypical, but it, um, people usually end up worse than me. I got lucky. I got pretty lucky. Um, yeah. I got lucky with my jaw surgery. I got lucky with the brain surgery and the medication. Um, I'm like, my, my story is pretty run of the mill. It's just that it's a very rare situation to be in in the first place. But for those right. that do experience like my, my brain tumor, like they all experience very, very, very similar stories and outcomes. Yeah. Um, so no, if you cheated, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Okay. That, that's fair. Um, <laughs> so let's jump into a little bit on, cause we've told both of our stories, obviously, yeah. um, jump into a little bit on the mentality tool, right? So like, like you said, you heard the, the C word for cancer. Yeah. And immediately that puts your, your head in this just crazy dark place immediately Yeah, because brain cancer is nothing to, to joke about or like, there's nothing positive about brain cancer. Brain um, cancer is like a, it's a terminal phrase. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a guaranteed death. Like you're going to die from this. It's just a matter of time. Yeah. Yeah. So talk about, you know, Obviously, it puts you in that dark headspace to start with, and then going through the surgery, you know, being in the hospital, things like that, the isolation of the hospital. Talk about what that does for that mental toll on just being alone with those thoughts and that that concern. I don't know. It was it was really weird. It ex- I experienced a lot of different things. Um, the first was. Like before, I, I don't know how to describe it. depends on the day, honestly. It's just like, you know, yeah. uh, ordinary life. Like you have ups and downs. Um, when I'm inside, when I was inside the hospital, like when they went first, when they like mentioned cancer, like the possibility of cancer, um, the first thing I thought about was like, it was just obviously a fear of death. It was just like, I... I'm not ready for right. all this to end. Like I, ha- I feel like I haven't even started my life yet, you know? And that really just gets you thinking like, like what are all these things that I kept putting off that I never did? Like what are all these experiences that I kept saying, one day I'll do this, one day I'll see this, or one day I'll go to that place. And you just never did because you're so busy, like, you know, doing the things that you quote unquote have to do because of like, you know, whether it's getting a job or going to school or like, you know, like ordinary meaningless tasks that like in the grand scheme of things don't really make a huge impact on your life. And I immediately just like regretted not taking more time to like experience the things that I wanted to experience. Um, and following that, like after a couple of hours of like ruminating, I'm like, wow, like what? And then you start thinking about like, what are all these people going to think about me? Like, when was the last time I spoke to this person? What was the last thing I said to that person? And like, how will they like, how will they know about this? Like, I wonder who will be the person to tell them? I wonder how they'll react. Will I be able to see them react, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So like, it's like this really yeah. weird mix of like, like wondering what will happen when you're gone. And then also being like, I don't want to know because I don't want to end, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And then like, once you go through like 
after you go through those motions, I start thinking about like, like, wow, if I get through this, this is what I'm going to do. And I'm not going to, you know what I mean? Um, and that was like, really like the fuel, like, I want to call it the eternal fuel. I obviously not going to live forever, but I feel like I'm going to be doing music for the rest of my life. So that like, I think about that moment pretty often. And I don't want to say like, I think about it like I relive it in my head. It's just like always right. back in my head, you know. It's yeah. kind of like um, like it's like a like it's like a a tattoo on your soul or something like yeah. you know or like 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 your name like you oh unless you lose the memory but like you know your name <laughs> you never right. like it's just there it's just it exists it's a part of you and this experience is something that just becomes a part of you and you just like it's just ingrained in your being I guess um, and so like it was one of those things where it's like, I'm always going to look, reflect on this going forward for however many years that I stay on this planet. This is always going to be something that motivates everything that I do going forward. Yeah. Um, but like when I was laying in the hospital by myself, it was just like, there's so many different times that I was in the hospital and they were all different. Like the first time that I was there, I was just like, this is like an ordinary procedure. Um, and the second time when, when I really thought that I was like possibly going to die or things are going to end, um, I, I don't really, <laughs> it's really hard to describe. It's such a weird feeling. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I was there, man. I get it. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like the, the, okay. What I do remember is time, just like time is just a concept. At that yeah. Point. It's, um. And like, uh, and this is, we start to get into philosophical things, but like, obviously time is a man-made construct so we can like do things, right? Right. Like we right. need, we had to have invented the concept of time so that we could all do things and collaborate at, you know, to make sure everyone's there in the same place at the right time. But for me, when I was in the hospital, it was just like, everything was, it was one experience. It was yep. one solid experience. I don't remember waking up a day or going to sleep one night. It was just, uh, you lose track of time and, uh, again, it's like all from your perception, but it felt like I was in there for, for weeks because yeah. like there was nothing to occupy my time. There was nothing, like I couldn't write any music. Um, I, all I could think about was like, think about the memories that I had experienced up until that point. And like, I guess just wish that I had a chance to experience more of them, you know? Yeah. Um, and it really puts into, really puts into perspective like how you how you like decide to experience the rest of your life, you know, how you decide yeah. like how much you're going to try to live in the moment going forward. Cause like, even now, like as I'm here, like living in New York and I'm like trying to like really push my artist career, I get, I sometimes I like, I revert and I get really caught up in like thinking about like this grand grandiose plan that I have and set for my career, like where I expect myself to be in 10 years or 20 years. And like, I catch myself thinking about that and I was like, but don't forget to like live today, you know, um, which is something that I right. didn't do prior to this experience. And I, I will catch myself like every now and then being like, remember to like live in the moment sometimes. And I, I have been very bad at it this past year because of yeah. COVID. Um, and I think a lot of us are, but it really does change your perspective on things. And, and honestly, like it really does. Like if, if you're the type of person that gets, uh, fueled by experiences like this, like then this is something that I would never wish upon someone. But if you manage, if you like, this happens to you, like use it as a tool because it's it's something that you can generate. Right. 
Yeah, and I, I think it's interesting because you and I are kind of two sides of the same coin when it comes to this, like our our hospital stays. Like up front, you had the ideas about, oh my God, I could die, all that stuff. And mine was after the fact because oh, I had yes. passed out. I didn't know what was happening. You yeah, know, I don't yeah. I didn't realize how close to death I really was until I woke up. And then it was, it hit me, you know, yeah, three weeks later and it hits me, you know, obviously I had a ton of messages and my sister had been on Facebook updating everybody and stuff. So I had all that to like sort through, which is a double-edged sword. Like it was really endearing, I guess, and and cool to see some of the the remarks that people were making. But at the same time, that shit was fucking heavy because people legitimately were worried that I was not going to make it. Um, and you know, so I think we both have kind of the same perception now, as far as like, I'm in the same boat, even though I know how long I was in the hospital now, like at the time you lose all track of that shit. You just know, like, here's, here's the nurses and stuff that I like. Here's, you know, like I know these people. And so like when they came in to check on me, like I had mostly good nurses. I had really only one that I didn't like, but like, I'll, I'll throw her first name out. Nurse Shelley was this amazing nurse that like bent over backwards to make sure that I was okay. My sister lives, you know, 45 minutes away, plus has to work, all that shit. So like, she couldn't come visit me all the time. And Shelley was great about like, literally coming in and if she didn't have other stuff to be doing with patients, she sat in the chair and just talked to me about different shit. Like, I think she knew, and I guess I don't know that she knew. Maybe subconsciously she knew like, hey, this kid almost died. Like, yeah. it's probably probably kind of heavy in his head. Like, let's talk about all this other shit that yeah, happened. Nurses are really like the saviors of the hospital. Like, yeah. they they're like responsible for making patients feel human, you know? Yeah. Um, where doctors more or less operate like robots because they have to, they have to be right. objective to the situation. And nurses are really the ones that like create the experience of like whether or not you're going to have a good stay. Um, and I, nurses yeah. are really the unsung heroes. Yeah, totally agree. Um, but yeah, like, so for me, similar to you, I think, to some degree, but like for me, I don't know. I'm not trying to one up you by any means because it's not something I want to one up you on. No, no, no. But I, I kind of have, <laughs> I kind of have like, I don't have a better word for it. Like almost an existential crisis about it because like I was so close to death and I came out the other side and it's like, okay, I'm still here, but, but why didn't I die? Like, yeah. why was I able to live? Why is, why do I not have any organ or brain damage? You know, like all these questions about like the whole situation and and, like even doctors, I just saw my primary care a week ago, two weeks ago, whatever it was. And even she to this day is still like, you know, reading your chart, like it's still just incredible to me that you're sitting in my office. And it's like, I I appreciate that. But at the same time, that's a fucking weird thing to to hear. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) how do they expect you to react? Like be grateful that like you didn't die. Obviously you are like, Right. No, so right. Like, and it, it's just, yeah, it, it's so crazy. But I'm, I'm the same as you in that, you know, looking back before all this happened, before my hospital stay and everything, 
maybe I didn't do all the things I wanted to do or like, you know, let my depression run my life to some extent. And I can't say that it never will again or whatever. And you know that from your own mental health battles. Yeah. But like, I can definitely look back and be like, why didn't I go with, with the guys to see that movie? Or like, why would I not want to go, you know, whatever, go, go on a day trip up to the, the lake or something like, what the fuck was I doing? And now yeah. it's like, and it's, and okay, let's do that. Yeah, and the craziest thing is like when you think about it, it's like you and, and if you think further about it, like why didn't I go like go on that hike with my friend? Oh, because like I had to wake up early for work the next day. Or like yeah. you know what I mean? It's like something so stupid and trivial that you're just like, like, would it have impacted my life that much if I decided to go do it? Like would I have suffered at work right. the next day? Yeah, probably I would have been a little tired, but who fucking cares? Right. Well, and then and then like to take it that one step further. Think about what you did instead. I probably sat on my fucking couch watching Netflix instead. Like, the fuck was I doing? Right, and it's and it's, and, that, and that goes without saying. Like, it's one of those experiences. If it's something that you really truly wanted to do, and you were just like, you know, if obviously if you didn't want to go on that hike, and don't go on that hike. But like, if it's something like if this right. experience that you've been putting off, if it's something that you've been putting off, then like you have, you know, barring normal limitations you have no excuse not to do it and and if you yeah. like think back to like what did you do instead was it something was like was that a decision that like impacted your life you know was it a right. yes or no thing because there are very 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 few yes or no decisions that you can make one day that'll impact your life and change the course for the rest of your life there are very few of those if any you know yeah it's like you can there's there's so yeah. much room for like room for error yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, what you can attest to as well, I don't think enough people, it's going to sound so fucking cheesy and cliche. <laughs> I don't, I don't think enough people really stop to appreciate those little things, a hike with a friend or, you know, just going to a, a family barbecue or something, you know, like yeah. these little quote unquote everyday things. But then, you know, like for me being as close to death as I was now looking back, I'm like, man, I missed out on some shit. Yeah. Right. You know, it's when I was sitting in, when I was in the hospital, I remember like I, I missed, I literally missed riding bikes. You yeah. Know? Like I, I was just like, I, I miss like, like just, I don't know. I don't know how to describe the feeling of riding a bike, but like sitting on a bike and just cruising, you know, yeah. that was just such a weird thing. You could do that anytime. I could do it right now if I wanted to go right. outside and grab a bike and ride it and it's just like you you miss out on these like small things that you take for granted and it's not cliche at all i mean in the context of this whole podcast not at all right right um so let's touch on quickly kind of the the growth that we've had since hospitalization so like you know we're kind of talking about it now in a in a roundabout way but like the that perception shift that we went through in your mind, how has that changed or impacted your mental health now and how you deal with certain things? And I guess kind of your view on what am I going to let in to affect me now? Oh, that's okay. So that's tough. Um, so I, wanna, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. It's, it's really interesting because I think that I've always been like a very all or nothing 
in it to win it person even before like the brain tumor thing like music even before yeah. the brain tumor music was always the thing for me like there was never another option um if anything the tumor was just like like debris in my path that i had to overcome to like continue on my path it was yeah fucking large <laughs> um yeah and it's like and it's something that like and the way that i think about it now it's because like because i still have so much you know i still have to take medication there's still a lot of residual effects from the tumor mm-hmm. um every single day it's a, like a single singular hurdle for me you know like waking up right. and having to take my medication every day is like i this is something that i have to do every day in order to continue doing music you know um and yeah you know, like my injections, like every 11 days, I have to stab a needle into the side of my leg. And I, I hate it. I absolutely hate it. It gives me the most anxiety every, every single time I do it. But it's like, I have to do it, you know? And it's like, it's just a hurdle. And I have to do it so that I can continue to do music. Um, right. And then it kind of puts me in this mindset where I'm just like, if you're gonna, if you're going to like overcome all of these hurdles, so you can put yourself in one of the hardest industries to be successful in, then you better fucking be successful, you know? Right. It's like, if, if I'm gonna like, basically put my body and my life at risk all the time for the long hours in the studio, the long hours staying up, working a full-time job, working two part-time jobs, rehearsing, you know, writing songs, making music videos, marketing, all this stuff that I do by myself. Like if I'm gonna put myself close to like, put myself at risk, then I, it better be successful. And yeah. It's just also another another cliche thing is like one of those like um, you put out what you want in the universe, you know, like the yep. the manifestation. Yeah. yeah. And so like, I don't know. I don't want to say I want to say that I'm doing I'm doing well <laughs> in spite. Yeah. In spite of all those things that like have, have fucked me up. Like, the, you know, what really messed me up, though, and to, uh, really messed with my expectations was the first time I ever released a song in a music video. It premiered on Billboard. And I have just never been able to live up to that ever since. And it's been like one of those things where I'm just like constantly chasing that high of the first time I premiered a song. I mean, we were on alt press like two weeks ago. So that was, that was pretty up there. That was pretty cool. Yeah. Thank (laughs) you. Um, That was pretty, that was pretty up there, but it's like those little moments that like, they, they don't, in the grand scheme of things, they're, they're not like, they're, uh, it's just like a really clout thing. But it, right. for me, it's like, okay, like you can keep doing this. Like you, like it's, it's, it's objectively going somewhere, you know? Right. Um, and it makes me, you know, feel like the, the fact that I'm doing, I don't want to say causing harm to my body, but like pushing myself so much, it's starting to pay off. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of ties into something I've not talked a lot about yet. Um, mainly because I don't know exactly what I want to do with it, but I've halfway started this third company for myself, which is called 5% Perseverance. The 5% being my blood oxygen level, Uh, but Perseverance because, you know, like obviously fighting through all these challenges, I think you're an example as well. These, you know, I've got residual effects from COVID. I can't, Currently, I can't control my heart rate as well as I used to. Wow. Um, basically, what I mean by that is like under under exertion. So like if I go for even a light jog, my heart rate jumps up 
really high pretty quickly. So mm -hmm. I have to like ease myself back into a lot of these things and build my endurance back up. Um, I get a little short of breath working out. Um, I've got some nerve damage in one of my legs, so I've got drop foot a little okay. bit. But through all these challenges, you know, kind of the same as what you're saying, you've got the medications and stuff. And like for people that don't take daily medications, I don't think they understand that. I think in their mind, oh, it's just a daily medication. It's not that big of a deal. You you eat every day, you drink every day, like whatever. But it's not the same thing. Like mentally, there's a difference to taking medication and having breakfast. Yeah. So, you know, persevering. You're right. You're right. And it's one of those things where it's like, I mean, kind of the same also though, because like you have to eat or else you'll die. Right. For me, it's right. like I have to take my medication or I'll die. <laughs> um, right. It's a lot easier to fuck up because like when yeah. you, when you don't eat, you get hungry and your body tells you, but if you do, for me, if I don't take my medication, I, I just pass out. So right. like there isn't a lot of lead up to it. So I, and I forget. Oh, I forget. I I have forgotten, and I have ended up in the hospital. It's, it's happened before. Um, yeah. So it's um, but you're, but but on that point, it is something that I have to think about. Like it's just like I have to eat, except it's not enjoyable. Right, right. And I think that's the the key difference is <laughs> not everybody eats for pleasure, but like eating is a pleasurable experience for most people. You yeah. know what foods you like, you know what foods you don't like. You're not going to intentionally go eat something you don't like. But if someone was like, hey, I've got chocolate cake over here and that's something you love, like, cool, I'm going to go fuck up that chocolate cake. You know, yeah. like, no, nobody ever, short of obvious addictions and, and things. Yeah. yeah. Nobody ever has been like, hey, I've got this pill that you can take fuck up that pill. Yeah. Yeah. So like, it's, it's such a, a weird difference, but yeah. you know, this 5% perseverance, like I said, I don't know exactly what I want it to be yet, but my, my thought process with kind of starting it and like forcing myself to lay the groundwork for it is mainly the perseverance part. Like the 5%, I guess it's slightly vanity in the sense that, like I said, it, it was my blood oxygen level, Oh, I but it's also the fact that I, I yeah, I think it's, to me anyway, it's more the fact that I thought back from 5% yeah. and I'm back to virtually a normal everyday life again. Yeah. So, you know, talking about perseverance and just pushing through these, these obstacles, you know, for anyone that's listening to this, that's in the hospital now or been in the hospital or has daily medications and things like that, like it, it's going to sound like super cheesy Hollywood movie, but like, you just have to keep stepping forward. It, it, you have to persevere through these minor challenges, yeah. sometimes major challenges. And I think what you and I can attest to is if you have a goal in mind and set that goal, you with music, me with my podcast, and photography and things like that. Like if you start looking at that as this is my enjoyment, this is what I'm working every day to do. Mm -hmm. Those little things that you have to do every day, taking your medication, doing breathing exercises for myself, like, cool, I'll, I'll do that if it means I get to go photograph another concert or, yeah, exactly. you know, go do whatever I want to do. So, you know, perseverance, I think, is, is a huge one. Um, I think where I want to kind of lead 
us to the end of the episode here is obviously your situation is different than mine. So we'll probably have different answers on this, but if you looking back could tell yourself anything at surgery, um, whether before either of the surgery or the, the tumor removal, like what advice would you have going into those to yourself from a mental standpoint that you would kind of change about it? From a mental standpoint, um, I think, I think for both times, I would tell myself not to be so hard on myself. Um, because I, I think during I that, that time, I was, I was, yeah, I was, uh, a lot of, I want to say a lot of the, the first, the first surgery, the jaw surgery, a lot of that was fueled by, I want to say ego, you know, it was like pride. It was like, I don't want to look dysfunctional. I mean, obviously there was the actual functionality of my mouth physically not being able to eat a slice. Right. But, um, but like primarily it was just like, I was embarrassed. I was just embarrassed to look the way that I did and, and be the way that I was, you know? And I, I didn't, I, I was, and I'm, and I'm very much like this. I'm very much just like, fuck it, do it now and deal with it later. You know, I was like, when I get excited about something yep. and I just, I just went full into it without really like considering the traumatic, the trauma that it would, it would give me. And, mm-hmm. and when I did, and when I was experiencing the trauma, when I was in the hospital, like suffering afterward, I was hard on myself for being an idiot, you know? And it's like, I would just yep. tell myself like, you're allowed to make that mistake. Um, because now you'll learn from it and like like you can't expect yourself to be perfect at all times you know even in the even in the fucking hospital but i think you know i'm in the same boat as you because like in hindsight it's hard for me to say that i fucked up in the hospital because obviously i got out (laughs) way faster than they anticipated um they told my sister to expect me to be on a ventilator for, I think it was four months and in the hospital for six. Oh my God. And I was out in 46 days. So like, when you look at it from that aspect, like clearly I didn't fuck up. I did everything I was supposed to do, but like on my physical therapy days and stuff, like I would get so down on myself when it was like, Oh, we're just walking down to the, the physical therapy gym. And then we're going to do, like the recumbent bike for 10 minutes. And it's like, why didn't I do it for 20 minutes? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. I, I could have done this. I could have done that. I, you, but at the same time, like, would it have helped or would it have put me in a worse condition? You know? Yeah. So I don't you totally know, get the, like being so hard on yourself because it's for yourself, it's never enough. Yeah. But I think that's where, if we have the right people around us in our cases, nurses in the hospital, but even family and, and friends, like we need those people in our daily lives too, because like, I think you can attest to this, that when you start getting down on yourself and you know, man, if I just did this different or whatever, like there's friends and family that can step in and be like, Hey, you didn't do anything wrong. This is just the way life works sometimes. Yeah, no, that's 1000% true. It's like, it's, you have to kind of think of it like, you after you go through a traumatic experience you're not the same person anymore 
So you can't expect yeah. the same things from the like from the person that who you were before this traumatic experience. You are a, you were changed. You like whatever has happened has happened, and it will be with you for the rest of the life. Whether it's like a traumatic experience, it doesn't even have to be physical. It could be mental. It could be abuse. It could be right. whatever. But like you are a different person. Like you are physically and emotionally and mentally a different person. So you can't expect yourself to be and act the same way that you did prior to that. Um, yeah. But I will say that you're, you're right. Like having people around to like keep you accountable for like your progress and like just keeping your morale up. Being alone is really hard when you're in recovery. Yeah. Um, I remember when I was after the brain surgery, my friends came over and we played this board game. It's this board game called Eldritch Horror, which is like this giant cooperative clue slash mystery RPG game. Yeah. It's kind of like Dungeons and Dragons, except way more easy. Um, and we sat there and we played for like six hours. And it was great because I could just sit down. I didn't have to walk anywhere. Like I would have to go pee all the time. Right. But it was when I think about my time in recovery, I think about that day more than any of the other days because it was the best day out of that three month period. Yeah. And those are the days. Yeah. For me. Yeah. Yeah. For, for me, um, Nurse Shelley is one, obviously, because she was so positive for me. Mm -hmm. But there was a, a nurse. Uh, that I had one night and she asked me if I'd seen this show. It's on Netflix. If, if anybody wants to check it out, um, it's a little like mini series. It's called uh, surviving death. And it's about near death experiences and the loss of loved ones and things like that. And she asked if I had seen it and I was like, no, but I had my laptop and shit with me at that point. Cause yeah. this was like probably, little uh, like maybe 10 days before I got out of the hospital, seven days before I got out of the hospital. I was like, no, she's like, well, I'm going to do my rounds. You have to watch at least the first two episodes because those were specifically about near death experiences. And I highly recommend people check this out. Um, so I watched those and she comes back, you know, later in the night and uh, she's like, did you watch them? And I was like, yeah, like super crazy. You know, like I didn't have that full experience. Like I never saw the white light, nothing like right. that. But, you know, it, it did put some stuff in perspective for me. And I shit you not, man. She came back to the room at like 1030 or 11 o'clock at night. Give me my last round of meds until the morning. She sat in my room until 330 in the morning. And we just talked about all sorts of shit. Wow. And like, I remember that conversation so vividly and so like, like you're saying, that's one of those conversations that just meant the world to me because it wasn't a woe is me thing. It wasn't a, you know, all sunshines and rainbows either. Like we talked about real world shit. We talked yeah. about her family, my family, and like really just getting back to a normalcy of life. And, you know, I think that at that moment, whether I realized it or not, was something I needed was somebody there that just made me feel like I was normal. Yeah. Um, and yeah. for anybody that's listening to this, like, whether it's like we're talking about medical side of stuff right now, but even if it's not medical and it's some sort of physical abuse at home or bullying or whatever the case may be, whatever your trauma, I can 1 million percent tell you there are people out there that have experienced something similar that can relate to you yeah. and people that want to help you know that you're normal. Like, you're not weird. It's not, you're not 
this is going to sound really bad because I don't have a good way to say it. You're not unique in your trauma in the sense that there is someone that has been through something so similar that they're going to make those connections and you're not alone in whatever battles you have. Absolutely. And it's, it's, it's weird. It's like struggles, like struggle is like, there are like a few certainties, you know, being a human and it's death is one and struggle, I think is the other, like, you're going, no matter what, you're going to struggle at some point and every single person will struggle and there's something that you can relate with. And I think it's one of the things is like as human beings, we're, we're a social people, like we're a social species. And we like, as, as you know, I'm pretty introverted myself, but like, I could not imagine being completely alone forever, you know? Right. Um, right. And just, and especially when you're in the hospital, it's like, it's like a different world in the hospital. You feel really alone and isolated. And there may be people right next to you in a different bed. Um, but like, it's just, you feel like you're, you're in timeout from the rest of the world. Yeah. You know, it's like, you're, you're in, like you're, you've been taken out of the game. You've been given a red card. You've been kicked out yeah. of the game and like, you're just watching from the sidelines now. Yeah. And you know, for me, being in there as long as I was, you know, like I said, I had my laptop and, and iPad and phone and all that. So like I could quote unquote, see the outside world through social media and stuff. And it's like, fuck, you know, like that messed with me some, at least in the beginning. Cause it was almost like, because I'm a, I'm predisposed. I've had depression as long as I can remember. And so like my mind went to that negative space where it was like, I'm laying in a hospital. I almost died. And like I threw myself a pity party. I almost died. And these people are just moving on with their lives Yeah. in hindsight. And luckily I didn't stay in that headspace too long, but like, that's what it felt like. Like what you're saying, I was just removed from, from the game of life. And now I just get to watch everybody else continue on. And it was like, but why? Like, what the yeah. fuck happened? Why am I not exactly. able to be involved? And then, you know, like I said, luckily I didn't stay in that headspace. And it, you know, it was, it was actually that that nurse that I talked to that night um, made a comment about um, with me specifically. You know, as close to death as you were, like she goes, I know it's hard in here sometimes, but what you have to to look at it as is not a punishment because you almost died. Look at it as your body recovering so that you can go live. Yeah. And like, just the way she worded it, I'm like, okay, yeah. Like I'm just building up strength so that I can get back out in the world and, and do whatever it is I'm supposed to do, or just do the things I love. And, you know, like you and I talked about a little bit earlier, you know, you said, through these traumas, we become changed people, which is a hundred percent correct. And, you know, like coming through the hospitalization and stuff for my, for myself, um, you know, I'm a little more vocal now about making sure the super close friends and, and my family and whatnot hear that, you know, I love you or, Hey, yeah, let's go hang out and let's go do this or whatever. You know, I'm, I'm much more conscious of these things. Um, I was conscious of them before, obviously, but now it's like with that thought that I almost left everybody without a goodbye, you know what I mean? Like I almost didn't get to say these words. So why would I wait to say them anymore? 
heavy. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. It's fine. I had I had the same thoughts at some point. Yeah. So um, to to wrap up the episode here, we've talked quite a bit, and hopefully people grab stuff from both of our stories and yeah. you know our advice and our our perception of things as we moved on. Um, but let's say for anyone listening to this that is is having a hard time, whether it's hospitalization or not, um, that they're dealing with some sort of trauma, that they're dealing with quote unquote normal depression or whatever, what advice do you have? What kind of point of view can you give to someone that is working their way through this and not sure what the next step for them is? Talk to somebody about it. Don't, don't be alone in your trauma. Like what you mentioned before, there's definitely a person out there that can relate, but like also I'm, I'm of the club that every single person in the world needs to get therapy. I, yeah. I believe every single person, whether, whether you've had a traumatic experience or not, but that's bullshit because every single person had a traumatic experience. Um, yeah. Every single person should go through therapy because it, it, it's less about fixing your therapy or fixing your trauma, but it's more about like learning how you as a person reacts to trauma so that you can really prepare yourself and understand like you're, so you're able to like understand how you, your conscious mind works. Because a lot of times we just react to things subconsciously. It's like, oh, this person made me mad. I'm going to be passive aggressive. You don't choose, people don't choose like most of the time, they don't choose to react a certain way. They just do because it's just so right. subconscious to them. Therapy is a way to kind of unlock that ability to think before you act or think before you feel, um, or rather examine how you feel and then maybe change your perspective on how you feel. And so when you're dealing with yeah. that experience for someone who hasn't really ever gone through therapy, you don't know how to, 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 to manage that. You don't know how to think about it and you don't know how to, um, you know, like, process it. And so therapy is something that gives you the tools to process things. And I think every single person should go through it. So don't go through trauma alone. Yeah, totally agree. And I, you know, I'm of that same mindset, which is a little funny to say, because I personally don't go to therapy. Um, but it's something I'm, I'm, I know it's something I'm, I'm working my way back towards, you know, I've, I've had, I feel like it's in my mind, I've made up the lie to myself and I know that it's a lie to myself, but I've been doing good enough long enough now that I'm like, uh, I don't need it until I'm in crisis, but that's not true. That's, like yeah. if you're, even if you're not in crisis, like that's actually probably a better time to go to therapy because you can learn how to deal with yeah. that crisis when it happens. You'll be way more prepared for crises that happen, but like you don't like, I think people shouldn't think about going to therapy to like deal with like a life-changing event. Like therapy should be something mm-hmm. that you go to. It should be like, you know, going to the gym, except way easier. Because all you do is just go and just talk yeah. about yourself. And people love to talk about themselves. So like, go do that to the person. Yeah, we've done it like, for almost two hours now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, like everybody loves to talk about themselves. Why would you not go to a professional who's physically supposed to just listen to you for like an hour? It's, yeah. it's like, yeah, it's just like keeping your, your mind in shape, I guess, or your emotions in shape. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think, you know, because my answer is basically the same as yours, what I'll say too is um, just to kind of piggyback on it. Like if you go to therapy for the first time and you don't feel that connection, that's okay. That doesn't mean stop therapy. Yeah. Like there are going to be different styles, different personalities, whatever. Like you're going to find someone that you mesh with. And when you do, that's when those doors are going to open up so much for you where initially it may be awkward. The very first time you go to therapy is probably going to be awkward. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's weird just because in your mind you've made it weird. Yeah. And I think that's, more so society and Hollywood has made it weird yeah, they because it. it's always portrayed as this. Yeah. They, they put that stigma on it. So now, you know, I, I want people that make that first step towards therapy to go into it with the kind of the mindset that it's okay. If this particular person doesn't work out, it's yeah. kind of like dating, right? Like very Absolutely. few people oh go on God, the first yes. date. And that's who they end up with. So yeah. think of it kind of like that. You're quote unquote dating your therapist, but don't actually date your therapist. <laughs> um, you're, you're kind of dating to find someone that you connect with yeah. that you can be vulnerable with. And I think what people will find is when you do that, um, you won't feel the shame, I guess is the word I'm going to use. So you know, I personally don't always unload on my friends because I feel like a burden and I don't want to put that burden on them. Mm -hmm. So you're not going to feel that with a therapist. Like that's why they're there. Exactly. So it's going to remove any extra pressure that, well, I should just keep this one bottled up. No, no, let it out. So I think, you know, your, your advice is spot on. I would also say just briefly to, to find resources and save them in your phone. You know, there's so many resources out there. Even we'll go with the, the scary one first, which is suicide hotline. Save that number in your phone, save it in a notepad, do something just so that you've got it. Even but if it's then, not for you. Even right, if it's not yeah, for you. Yeah. Um, but then there are so many other like incredible organizations to write love on our arms, hope for the day, heart support, and countless others. NAMI, which is the National Alliance yeah. of Mental Illness, like go to these places, save some resources so that you're when you decide that that step is for you, you already know where you need to go. Yeah. And you have no excuse. Right. Right. Awesome talk, man. Yeah, um, too. It definitely went longer than, than I think yeah, either I'm of us planned. No, no, I'm totally fine with it. And I hope people listen all the way through this because even if they skip around in our, our medical stories and then get to our advice and whatnot, our perceptions, uh, I think the, the thing for me with having this conversation, especially coming out of the hospitalization for you and I, I can honestly say since I came out of the hospital other than you, there's not another person that I've talked to or seen talking about what the hospital did to their mental health and kind of how it affects them. So like, yeah. if you think about it, there's how many people in a hospital every day, you know what I mean? Like yeah. an unfathomable number, you know what I mean? And nobody's talking about it. So I hope people, whether you've been in the hospital are in the hospital, have a family or a friend that's in the hospital, like, listened to this whole episode and kind of get that perspective that 
even a text outside of the visiting hours could be so uplifting because of the isolation that they feel in that yeah, it really it really does like a facetime a text just like connection to the outside world is vital for people that are staying in a hospital for long periods of time um because it's like they're locked in a room and they they're locked in a room they're being told that they're sick they're being told that they're helpless and yeah i mean for the most part they are and so yeah. like imagine like what it's like to just like you know be bedridden and not be able to do anything for yourself but and I, I i don't know i hope people take away some positive vibes off off our conversation um being that it's still musicians for mental health uh i do want to give you the the time go ahead and self-promote a little bit i know you've got a lot of stuff that you're working on and some uh cool stuff in the pipeline so let people know yeah. what's up with with darrow in the future here okay so uh we just dropped a song called Guns on guilt um we dropped it two weeks ago and we have a music video for that coming out and i think it's our best music video that we've ever done um i say that about every new music video but this one's <laughs> this one's truly the best one we've ever done we like we spent hours on special effects makeup. We have an edible, we have two edible brains. Like we went crazy <laughs> on the production for this. So watch it when it drops. I don't know when it's gonna drop yet. I have to wait for my PR to like get back to me on the release day, but probably within the next two weeks. And then we have more music coming out after that. And uh, next month I am going to Portland to go, go work with Chris Crummett to finish my album. And after that's done, then we're gonna have a bunch of music coming out throughout the next year awesome man uh obviously i'll i'll link all of them but go ahead and drop all your socials if people want to check out you know instagram and all that for you oh yeah uh for most places you can find me at darrow underscore c that's d-a-r-r-o underscore c that's my at for tiktok for instagram um and facebook it's just facebook.com slash darrow chia awesome man I appreciate your time. Um, like I said, it went a little longer than what either of us planned, but oh, I, I absolutely loved talking to you, dude. Yeah. So, um, yeah, let's, let's go ahead and end it here. Um, for anyone that's still listening, let's do, I do want to do one last thing because okay. I've been playing with the idea of, of doing a giveaway and I've got a really cool idea for a merch shirt down the road, but I'm coming up with a, a space filler one, I guess is the best mm -hmm. way to put it. Um, so if somebody listened all the way through this episode, or at least got to this part right here, somehow skipping around or whatever, I'm going to let you pick the giveaway word. And if they comment on the Instagram post, this word from whatever you choose, uh, they can comment that word. I'll DM them and they get a free shirt. And I'm going to limit that I'll to- I'll throw in a free shirt too. I'm going to do five people. Yeah. I'll, okay. I'll throw in some shirts okay. too. Yeah. Um, awesome. I want to say, ah, oh, that's really good. What? It's got to be something crazy. Um, five percent. Okay. That's the okay. word. If five percent symbol, the number five. Okay. And then the yep. percent symbol. If anyone does that, awesome. then they're gonna win a free shirt. You'll get it. You'll get some shirts from me too. Awesome, man. I appreciate it so much, dude. Um, as always, you can get a hold of me whenever you know that. So, um, yeah, let's uh, end it here. And, you know, 
you go have a, a good night, eat dinner, whatever you're getting ready to do, and uh, I'll keep you updated on when this is going live and everything, and we'll back it out. All right. Thanks so much, Josh. It was, it, was, it was awesome. Yep. All right. Have a good night. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. You too. And that was my conversation with Darrow. Really hope you guys enjoyed that. I hope you guys take some stuff away from this conversation that we had. Um, you know, not to throw a pity party or woe is me or anything like that, but uh, Darrow and I both had relatively traumatic um, experiences when it came to why we were hospitalized, how long we were hospitalized, the procedures we went through and all that. Um, and I think the important thing, possibly the most important thing um, from this whole episode is the kind of towards the end there where we talked about um, it. it's kind of dehumanizing sometimes to be in the hospital, no matter how great your nurses are, your doctors, you know, in, in my hospital stay, I had some amazing nurses and doctors, um, but there's still a lot of things that you're doing that make you feel like you're not really a person, you know, um, even as simple as them coming in on a schedule to take blood or read your vitals, things like that, it at some point kind of becomes this feeling of being a lab experiment. Um, and I don't know if that's unique to those of us that experience mental health issues as far as depression, anxiety, um, just overthinking things, you know, or if it's universal. I feel like it's a universal thing, you know, when you're in there for a long period of time, um, it, it really starts to weigh on you pretty heavily. Uh, I was in the hospital for a total of 46 days, um, and that included being lifelined, being basically put in a medical coma while I was on ECMO and a ventilator. Um, I was on very heavy sedatives and paralytics, and so then after coming to almost three weeks later and finding out, you know, that three weeks had passed that you don't remember and all of that, like, it, it's a heavy blow to morale. It's a heavy blow to just your mental state in general. Um, so like we said there towards the end, um, anything you can do, if you've got friends, family, whatever, that are in the hospital, especially for any extended amount of time, those little things, man, like a text message, a FaceTime, um, you know, anything you can do, to just brighten their day a little bit, um, to remind them that they are a person, they're a person that you care about, they're a person that that matters. Um, it goes a long way, you know, and it does not go unnoticed. So let's be very, very aware of that. You know, I think it's so easy to think that, oh, well, they've got nurses and and doctors around, which is true, but those people are doing their jobs and they're not always going to be in the room with that person and they can't just spend every hour with them and you know making them feel like it's normal um i was completely bedridden for a while and it it takes a lot out of you mentally to not be able to 
do the simple things, you know. So, um, I know this was a very long episode, uh, but I hope truly that it helps anyone um, that you took something away from it. And that's really everything I've got. You know, I definitely recommend you guys checking out Darrow's work. Um, his newest set of songs relate to some of his um, health scares, you know, with the, the brain tumor and, and things like that. Um, and then, you know, they're progressing now as he's healing mentally um, from a mental health standpoint. They're becoming much more of kind of your traditional pop punk, which I'm a big fan of. Um, so he's got, you know, songs that are going to just resonate with a lot of people. So check him out. Really appreciate him taking the time to do this conversation with us. Um, and appreciate him chipping in. So if you guys listen to the whole episode, there is the giveaway that we're doing. So go find that secret keyword. Um, comment on the Instagram post of this episode, which is at you make the scene. Just find the post that is about this episode. Comment that giveaway secret word. And I believe he's offering the same number. So we're going to say five shirts. Um, so five people will win a shirt that comes from me and one that comes from Darrow. So, um, you know, two free shirts to just listen to an episode is pretty cool. Uh, and yeah, stay tuned for a lot more uh, awesome stuff. We've got some great conversations lined up. And, you know, I just want to take you out the same way that, that we always do. And that's with the simple reminder, guys, to take care of yourselves, take care of each other, and you make the scene.